Hey, welcome everyone to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen. It is August 11th, which means tomorrow I go back to school for my first institute day. Welcome to the 2021 school year. Yeah, so if you're listening to this three years from now, you'll remember back in 2020, the age of COVID. But none of that nonsense right now. Let's go to the topic at hand. Seth Koster is my guest today. He emailed me about a month or so ago. Uh, he wanted to talk about his uh, pet project that he just started. And it's a website called Accent Connection. This website is akin to something like Uber or Airbnb in that it takes advantage of what they call the connection economy. So if you're a therapist who is providing accent reduction, modification, dialect acquisition, whatever you want to call it, and you're looking for clients or vice versa, if you're a client who's looking to acquire an accent, reduce an accent, whatever you want to call it, this is a place for both um, consumer and provider to meet. And it's, a, it's not a platform per se, so the therapy is done elsewhere, but it's basically a way for those two people to meet and to do therapy ostensibly over the web. And of course, what a great time to launch such an enterprise, being that we're in the age of COVID and everyone's moving towards teletherapy. So what a great time. But the bigger issue is that I wanted to have Seth on because his story is actually very interesting. He's an American speech pathologist who's now living in Vietnam, and I wanted to hear how that came to be. Our conversation, by the way, begins as we are talking about whether mask wearing is something that is a daily occurrence in Vietnam or not. Now, when I recorded this, uh, Vietnam's numbers of COVID were pretty much non-existent. After we recorded this podcast, however, um, within right about the time I released it, the numbers started to creep up again. I'm not sure where it is today as I'm releasing this, but uh, hopefully that number becomes zero again real soon. Okay, here we go. People are to some extent, but I think that at this point, just because it's been so long that a lot of that has kind of gone by the wayside. Um, but there's kind of a mass culture here anyway. So um, for one thing, because there's a big motorbike culture here. So people wear the cloth masks okay. a lot. So it's just reasonably common. So I don't know if people are wearing masks because of COVID or because they just wear masks. You know? Ah, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's jump into your story because when you emailed me, I was fascinated. I, I did a, just did a Google search. I think you're from Maryland. Is that right? Well, no, I, I'm originally from Michigan. I um, oh, Michigan. grew up okay. in Michigan uh, in and around Ann Arbor. And oh. I then I kind of traveled the country for a while after that, um, after I was old enough to. And when I went back to school, I went back to Eastern Michigan. But then later on, when I did graduate school, I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, and I had a house in Maryland. Um, actually, my mom ended up staying there after uh, afterwards when I moved away. But um because I went to uh, Howard University in order to pay for my grad school, I actually did a scholarship through Prince George's County, uh, County Public Schools, and I had to work there. Well, I, I didn't have to. I was privileged to work there yeah. for one year for every semester that they paid for. So I stayed there for a few years, uh -huh. and um, 
after that, one of the reasons why I went to Howard University was because I knew that at some point I kind of wanted to experience uh, the outside world. So after that, I got the opportunity to work for the United States Navy Naval Hospital in Okinawa. Wow. And so, I'm, yeah, it was it was an amazing opportunity. I moved out to Okinawa with them. I was working as a contractor and I worked with EDIS, which is the um, early intervention program. Mm-hmm. for um in uh, in the United States military and I don't know if you're aware I don't know if your listeners are going to be aware however the United States went military because they have families go with um military members overseas they're required to supply the same education that is um under IDEA mm-hmm. so in the same way that they have to provide regular education, they have to provide special education. And so, of course, Part C services are also required. And since I've been doing Part C early intervention for years for Prince George's County, I managed to get that opportunity and just an amazing place to be. Okinawa is one of my favorite places in the world. Oh, man, it just, it looks beautiful. Just from, and of course, it's also a blue zone, as they say. Are, are people, do the people look as healthy as the, the book suggests? Uh, there's a Dan Butner, I think. Uh, are you familiar I, with the book at all? I'm not. I'm not. Oh. What book is this? So, yeah, Dan, uh, I think it's, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. Dan Butner. Yeah, he traveled the world. I, 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 he's a journalist, I believe. And uh, he wrote a book called The Blue Zones. And it outlines the healthiest uh, people in the world, which communities. And so one of the communities that he focused on was Okinawa. Okinawa. And he, you know, he's examining the diets and he found that plant-based diets uh, tended to uh, correlate with increased longevity. And the Okinawan diet, I guess, is, uh, is a very healthy one. Um, Okinawans, I think, have, you know, many of them live well into their 90s, hundreds. Uh, yeah, it sounds uh, very accurate to me. Um, I know that when I was there, somebody actually told me a story because uh, one of their teachers was and I think he was studying calligraphy or something. I, I'm not exactly sure, but a lot of people when they're in um, Okinawa, um, they try to kind of absorb the culture as as one would. And one of his teachers had to attend the funeral of her, um, somebody who was close to her. I'm not sure if it was a teacher or somebody else who was high in the community. And her te- the teacher of my friend was close to 100 years old, and she rode her bicycle to the funeral. So that that, that probably correlates pretty well with the Blue Zone idea. Yeah, you yeah. find a lot of uh, very healthy people in Okinawa. Um, one of the things that they eat, and I don't know if this is true or not, but they always told me that Goya, which is uh, a bitter, they call it bitter melon. I, it, it's terrible in my opinion. I don't enjoy it, but I, I yeah. ate it, of course, when I was there. But they say that, that that's uh, kind of the secret to the long life, I guess. But um, I'm, I'm not sure if, if it's worth it to me to eat <laughs> Goya for, you know, 20 years to get an extra six months. But, yeah. Um, well, that's, that's the things I remember. Like with each region, they talked about a specific food that was very, that he kind of, like, so with, um, with Sardinians, I think it was uh, Cananu wine in Okinawa. I think it was that. Um, I, as I'm like, I'm like, there was a f- there was a food that Okinawans that, that could have been at the Goya. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Maybe so you said in Sardinia they get a wine that makes them live longer. There's a wine in Sardinia. It's I believe it's I'm hoping I pronounced this right. Cananu. I've actually had it once. It's supposed to be extremely high in that chemical compound resveratrol that 
was became it was very popular in the 90s i think is they first discovered this compound that they felt um and you know so people of course take that in supplement form and who knows i don't think in in the supplement form it's the concentrate it's concentrated enough to to do much but so yeah it, they they drink this stuff on a daily basis is what i'm told you know it's a it's a very you know european wine culture anyway and so they they say that this wine is uh one secret of this of their success of their longevity who knows i i I feel like I feel like I went to a country where you had to eat bitter vegetables, and yet there was another country where you got to drink wine for yeah. the exact same benefit. I'm not sure I got the better end of that deal. No, but you know they need to create you know they need to create a diet that's that takes one aspect of each one of the blue zones that he discussed. You know, have it have the goya, have this uh, kind of new wine on a daily basis. But you know, I, I like you're alluding to. I think one of the secrets of uh, their success is that they move around a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah, they, they actually, walk, that, they bike. That's a really good point. I, you know, um, Okinawa, I don't know if you've ever been to the main islands of Japan, but there's huge train and subway systems and you can get around really, really easily there. Okinawa, of course, being an island, they can't, they don't have that. And their bus system is much more rudimentary. Um, and so there's a lot of people on bicycles all the time, especially when you get away from the the like Naha's the big city mm-hmm. on the main island of Okinawa. If you go kind of further north, there's a lot of people on bicycles, so there is a lot of uh, exercise and movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think totally the air is sense. probably really good too. The what now? Breeze. The air. Oh, um, the air. You can always feel the the breeze from one side of the island kind of blowing over you to the other side of the island. It just feels very fresh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I have to say, like, yeah, uh, okay. Japan, you were asking if I've ever been there. That's that's uh, one of my dream uh, destinations. If I uh, it, in, international travel is my number one place I want to go next. Japan is an awesome country. I I thoroughly enjoyed Japan. I would probably still be in Japan if I hadn't ended up uh, kind of wandering down the path that I ended up here, getting to Vietnam. In fact, um, that's kind of where I ended up going. I, I kind of traveled upwards. I grew up in Michigan. Yeah. So one of my goals was always to end up at the end of days on the equator in a hammock because I was so tired of snow growing up. Right. <laughs> but um, going from Okinawa, I actually went the wrong way and I went north to the main islands of Japan. Okinawa is beautiful, but you get a little bit of island fever after a little while, or at least I did, because there's yeah. only so much you can do. On an island that size, and yeah. I know, like I know that a lot of people who lived on Guam for years, and I can't even imagine because it's much much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up going up to live in Yokohama, Japan, mm-hmm. and uh, then Tokyo, and I opened a private practice in Tokyo. And Japan is an amazing place. If it's on your bucket list, I would absolutely 100% make sure that you, you know, flip that bucket as soon as you possibly can. I mean, well, no, that's probably the wrong way to say it. Don't. Don't kick any buckets, but definitely <laughs> go to Japan. <laughs> okay, wait. So here, I, you know, I came across another SLP recently who um, had moved to a foreign country and, and opened up a private practice. Now, how does one open a private practice? Did you speak Japanese or do you speak Japanese? Uh, at that point, I spoke conversational Japanese, which is nowhere near enough to actually work through the taxation or the business systems. And... <laughs> uh, um, I can say this with absolute certainty. Opening a private practice in Japan is kind of like playing the worst video you game you can find on the hardest mode that you can put it on. 
Um, because uh, just opening any business in Japan is really, really, really incredibly complicated, right? You have to, there's a variety of legal things that you have to go to. Your office has to be a certain square footage. You, of course, you have to have an office. Like in the United States, I have an LLC and I don't live in the United States. I haven't lived in the United States. I bought it for like, you know, $150. I paid an agent, you know, in Wyoming for an LLC. Yeah. In Japan, um, my application was somewhere in the range of 30 to 50 pages long to open the business. Um, I had to do it through a business opening corporation. I also had to prove that I had um, the equivalent of about, with the, with the yen exchange rate, about $50,000 of assets that could be liquid and used for, um, for the company itself. Um, and a lot of that is not really around the opening the business. A lot of that is really about getting the visa in order to stay in Japan, right? Okay. If you just want to open a business, it's far easier. It's nowhere near as easy as the United States, but it's far easier. Um, but if you want a visa to live in Japan, then you have to go through a significant number of steps. Um, added on to that, for example, in the United States, if you have a small business, you can do your taxes yourself if you want to. To me, it's worth it to pay an accountant because I, I really hate doing taxes. Yeah. Um, but in Japan, you just really can't. The complications are really, really involved. And so you have to have an accountant and they have to be kind of not on staff, but it's a monthly payment as opposed to once a year you give them a call type of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, opening a business in Japan is really, really complex. Um, I highly encourage people to get their visa some other way. Yeah. If they possibly you know, as you're saying this, I was thinking I have a chiropractor. One of my chiropractors is, is Japanese, and he travels back. Well, not since the pandemic, but he goes back to Japan about four or five times a year to do his specialty. He has a very specialized type of chiropractic uh, manipulation that he does. Um, but he, he travels back there, and he has like another business, I guess, there. I'm just like wondering, how does he manage those two? But, yeah. I would imagine as a Japanese person, he probably has a significantly easier time of navigating a lot of it. One of the really neat things about Japan, actually, and well, it's neat to me, but I'm, I'm a little geeky about countries, yeah. is, for example, it, the worst place that you can imagine going in the United States is probably the DMV, right? <laughs> like, yeah, right? Yeah. that sounds awful. Um, in Japan, your ward office is a wonderful place to go. They are super helpful. They are super fast. They want to see you succeed. They will help you find the right way to do anything for the least cost that you can possibly do it. And so I would imagine that as a Japanese person, for him, it's reasonably easy because he doesn't have the same language barrier. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure that the tax code is still very complicated and that he's paying somebody to do his taxes for him. Yeah. Um, but probably a lot of the other parts of it, um, because just to get a business bank account in Japan, it's it's very, very complicated. You have to have, you know, you have to have your company seals and, and all sorts of things like that. But those are things that I'm sure he would be able to figure out being Japanese. You know, it's it's interesting how much culture, cultural knowledge people have, isn't it? Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah, I'm listening to some. And, and of course, I'm thinking I, I'm, I'm so fascinated. I wanted to almost do another episode on um 
just uh, applying speech pathology, like how it's practiced throughout the world and, and just the cultural differences that go into uh, treatment uh, decisions, uh, you know, patient preferences, what are they considered more important? I mean, is voice more important in one country or part of the world than another? So there's so much to, to mind there um, by itself and for speech pathology. So. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, and I don't have, I have experience in a few countries, but I'm sure that there are people who have like a lot of experience in a variety of other ones. But like from my own per perspective, it was really interesting seeing how it works in Japan and then later on in Vietnam, because in Japan, it's not like we have to have master's degrees in the United States. In Australia, you have to have a bachelor's degree, et cetera. In Japan, it's much more of a technician type of field. Really. Everything is kind of, yeah, everything is directed by the doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and so there isn't a lot of diagnoses or prognoses or planning that are necessarily done by the speech therapist in Japan. Um, and instead, they they really kind of work through the programs that they have, right? For example, if they, if if somebody was going to do Lee Silverman, right, the speech therapist would do Lee Silverman, but they would be very, very good at doing it exactly how it's done. But mm -hmm. they would not be the person who would decide that Lee Silverman was the appropriate thing to do for this client. That's not to say that Lee Silverman is done in Japan, but you, yeah. you kind of get my meaning? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So if the decision to do LSVT was made, who is it the doctor making yep. that decision? I mean, it, I mean, would the doctor even know of all the different types of interventions to make an informed decision? That's a good question. Uh, my, I mean, I have an American-centric view on it, you know, so I'm yeah. not sure that my view is accurate. But from my personal view, I don't think that doctors generally do. But keeping in mind that that um, that's my own cultural kind of imperative, right? So sure. I don't know that I'm right, but my view is that they really can't possibly, because you can't know all of the treatments for PT, OT, speech, et cetera, sure. and no general practice medicine all at once. I would think that would just be really, I have a hard enough time knowing enough about speech therapy to yeah. do speech therapy, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's true. So, yeah. So you grew up in Michigan, you traveled a little, mm -hmm. little bit, kind of went through, uh, went to college, got your master's, uh, worked in the Prince George's County schools, mm -hmm. uh, went to Okinawa, and then and then when you opened up this private practice in Japan, did you specialize in pediatrics, adults, both? I was open to anything because I needed to eat. Um, which a really good motivator, right. For, uh, for seeing any client that will see you. Um, I was lucky in that the vast majority of, uh, clients that came to me were clients that I could see. I didn't accept anybody who I didn't feel was appropriate for my services, either because it wasn't something that I felt, uh, competent in. I, I had, a, a somebody try to come to me with, a, a um, a child who had, um, bilateral, um, uh, cochlear implants. And my point was, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've never done, what is it? The bell certification courses. I'm mm -hmm. not the right person for you. Yeah. Right. Um, but the vast majority of people who came to me were immigrants to Japan from primarily countries like India and, uh, countries where they were coming to create, um, you know, 
either a better life or to do what their company wanted them to do, which was to go to Japan to, you know, work. And they had children who could not be served by the local um, uh, speech therapy services because speech therapy in Japan is primarily based around the medical model. Yeah. Um, there is speech therapy for, for example, kids with autism, but for the most part, those children are kind of put into special schools as opposed to the inclusion. Um, and keep in mind that, the, you know, my knowledge is about four or five years old. So some of this may have changed. But my understanding of it at that point was that most of these kids ended up being put into special schools as opposed to being in kind of an inclusion model that we use in the United States. And it was pretty much purely in Japanese. In fact, I would say it is purely in Japanese hmm. that these students were provided with therapy. Very so, interesting. Yeah. Um, so for the clients that you did see, so they're all, for the most part, uh, folks coming in from other uh, countries, and you saw mm -hmm. both adults and, and peds in that, in that area. I'm just curious, while you were in private practice there, did you connect with other speech therapists, uh, Japanese? Yeah. Yeah, I actually connected up with uh, Japanese as well as foreigners. Um, when I was in Okinawa, um, I, I was working there with the U.S. military, of course, with Department of Navy. And I had a friend there who had been a PT there for, oh, I don't know, like years, 10 years, something like that, for mm -hmm. a long time. And she had a really uh, close connection with the PTOT school that was there, which is like speech. It's a technical college. It's not a full bachelor's degree. It's a technical college. Um, so I connected up with them and uh, spent a significant time just uh, talking to students there about what it was like in the United States, things like that. And then when I went to the main islands, they connected me up with some people up in the main islands of Japan so that I could learn, um, so that I could just have kind of uh, professional networking there. Not that it, it wasn't really about getting clients. It was really just about having people to talk with. But mm -hmm. also in Tokyo, there's a group led by um, a speech path by the name of Marsha Rosenberg, who is who who has been in Japan for a long time. I, I don't even know how long she and her husband have been there forever. Um, and she actually runs a group of speech language pathology foreign speech language pathologists in japan oh cool uh, so yeah every few months she would have a meeting at her house and she had a beautiful house right in tokyo um and people would we would all go there and we would kind of have fellowship and talk and if you wanted to you could then kind of you know find people that you felt like you wanted to connect with separately from that um, but it was also a nice opportunity for, for example, JAS. I think it's Japan Association of Speech and Language Speech. I don't remember the full thing, but it's essentially the ASHA of Japan. Mm -hmm. um, here and there, representative, and I'm not sure exactly how high up in the organization, but a representative would come and invite us to things, to events that JAS, whatever was putting on, mm -hmm. um, conferences, things like that. So you got the opportunity there to have both professional fellowship with people from English speaking countries, um, because it wasn't always in the United States, we had a variety, um, but also the Japanese therapist. So that was very interesting. Nice. Yeah. That's yeah. Very nice. I'm, I'm sure you have uh, connections that you keep in contact with today. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I send people over to them when, when they're not appropriate for my services generally. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay. So how long did you stay in uh, Japan for? 
I stayed in Japan, um, I'm going to say probably four years, maybe something like that. And keep in mind that there was a pretty big gap between um, me, you know, ending, ending high school and going back to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's kind of a story in and of itself. In 1997, I was in a car accident and I had to do my own rehabilitation. Um, so there oh, was wow. a gap there. So I've, I've been a speech path for about 10 years, not, not the 20 plus that one might expect when somebody's reaching, getting close to 50. So I was there for about three years ish and I've been maybe two years, three years about that. And I've been here for. Um, about three, four. So maybe, yeah, th- around that three to four in both places. Okay. So, so, so what made you move on to Vietnam then? You know, that's, that's actually interesting. Um, because weird side trip here, my mom, um, she was a speech path. One of the big reasons why I ended up being a speech path is because I grew up around it. I grew up, she was, um, um, one of the earliest people to work with computers and head injury back in the seventies. And I grew up in her office essentially. And, uh, some of my earliest memories were her presenting for conferences at ASHA, um, about, you know, using the old apples with head injured people. Um, and when I was looking around at the end of kind of my time in Tokyo, well, about halfway through my time in Tokyo, my mom was getting close to retirement age, um, and a very sad thing happened. She was she was doing early intervention, where, as I'm sure you're aware, you drive to kids' houses, mm-hmm. right? And uh, interestingly, that's that's exactly what I did in Tokyo. Only I took the train to everybody's house, which is an adventure in itself. <laughs> um, that's that's a fun thing. Um, but yeah, she she was um, her car was hit by a semi truck, and so she had to do an early retirement medically. Um, and no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it was not the way that she wanted to stop working. Um, and I knew that my mom was getting older and I knew that there were some things that I, that I really wanted to do with her. Um, and one of those things was that I wanted to be able to show her kind of the parts of the world that I had seen when she got married to my dad, she thought that my dad had seen the world because he talked about it all the time, but it turns out that he had just planned trips, um, mm. but never actually been able to go on them. <laughs> so, so, um, I wanted her to be able to see the world. Yeah. Um, and so I planned out a trip and I took my younger brother, he's uh, adopted from Columbia and he has some pretty significant learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I took him and my mom from Japan to, um, oh, where was it? Um, I think up to South Korea, then Vietnam after that, then Thailand, and then, um, I think India. Yep. And finally Israel, because my mom wanted to see Israel. Of course, my mom was Jewish. So, Mm. um, something very important, uh, to my mom was seeing Israel. Um, and in that, in the course of that journey, one of the things that I, um, saw was just in Vietnam, the level of need that there was. Um, and so when I got back to Japan, after all of this, I looked around to see if there was something I could do because there was kind of a a confluence of things coming together that made me feel like I wanted to be useful. One, I'm, I'm not really a big city type of person. So living in Tokyo made me feel kind of, um, lonely, but not lonely, just just disconnected. 
Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think um, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're living in a big city. I mean, obviously, Tokyo is a very uh, crowded city, from what I gather. Um, yeah, but, 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 but there's a lot of. Uh, I think with the. I mean, I don't know if I'm making an assumption here, but I think there's a lot of. It's just a more a cultural thing. A lot of sort of anonymity. You know, there's a lot of people, but I think everyone's kind of into their own thing. I don't know if that's uh, correct or if I'm completely off the mark. No, you're 100% right. And and that's really, really well stated. People are into their own thing. And there's um, some culture around that. There's a lot of privacy in Tokyo. I, 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 I can count the number of Japanese people's houses who I went to on zero fingers, um, mm-hmm. put it that way. And I had a lot of Japanese friends, but you just don't do that. Yeah. Um, and so I was disconnected. Um, and I also saw that in Vietnam, there was just a lot of people who really like, it's a very young culture, right? It's a young country, mm-hmm. not a young culture, but a young country. It's a very old culture, but a young country and people want, people want to do things. They want to achieve things. And, um, that really drew me in and I could see that there was a real need for, people to be useful here in terms of speech pathology or in terms of helping in some way. And so I got in touch with um, a foundation out of Australia called Trin Foundation and asked them if there was something I could do. And, and they asked me if I wanted to do some mentoring. So I said, yes. So I flew over to Vietnam. Um, I went to Da Nang, which is in central Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I mentored in Da Nang and Hue. Um, and mentored several students at the University of Da Nang Medical Technology and Pharmacy. Medical technology um, uh, universities are specifically not medicine universities. They teach like OTPT. Um, they didn't spe- teach uh, speech therapy yet because there was no speech therapy programs in Vietnam yet. Hmm. Um, and and that's actually interesting, and we'll get to that. Um, because I participated in making that happen. Um, and, um, and then a couple of therapists in Hui, Hui, I I need to get my tones right. Um, Hui and Hui are two completely different words. Um, (laughs) I have to hear that uh, five times before I'll get that, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. I need to hear just as many and I've been here for a while. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for a couple of reasons. One, because I felt like I was being useful and I felt like instead of being super easily replaced by any other therapist in Tokyo, because there's just a teeming mass of humanity, I felt like what I was doing was really kind of useful. Um, And also the people that I was working with were really appreciative. Like there wasn't, there wasn't any kind of expectation and anything that I was willing to do was appreciated. And I liked that. That's, that just seemed really nice of them to be open to me. Yeah. Um, and so I decided after that trip that I'd like to do something a little bit more comprehensive. So I talked to the head of the university here or the head of the speech therapy department of the university, which was kind of a burgeoning. We have speech therapists, even though there's no real training for speech therapy in Vietnam. There were there were like nine month programs Mm -hmm. that doctors and physical therapists would do. And then they would become speech therapists and then they would get mentored by people like me. But nothing that was really codified. Um, And. So I talked to her, Dr. Twee, 
and asked her if they would be interested in having me on a longer term basis um, consistently in the university. Um, and I, I don't ask for any money. I've never taken any money um, for anything that I've done in Vietnam. Like uh, for the needs assessment, they paid for like my travel to get back and forth to things because I had to travel all around the country. Yeah. Um, and like they, I mean, lunch and stuff, but I, I never, it wasn't about getting money. Um, and she was interested. So I connected up with, um, trim foundation again, came over here on an LV one visa, which is a visa that is for, if you're working with government, uh, facility, um, facility or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I put on classes and I did mentoring for the five, I think maybe six therapists that they had here. I did that for quite a while for close to a year. Um, and so I would bring in concepts around apraxia or a lot of it was based around autism because there's just a ton of kids who are on the autism spectrum in Vietnam. And there is very little um, competent services for that. Mm. Um, you hear really odd things from doctors like uh, a doctor here in Ho Chi Minh City told one family that they should send their child um, out to the provinces where the one of the in-laws family lived um, because that way they would just be, um, you know, they would have to learn the language because the city has less language or something or I don't know. Okay. But it was just like, yeah, it, it was it, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, um, yeah. So I would teach short classes um, on these things, and I would do that in Da Nang, and then I would get invited down to Ho Chi Minh City and up to Hanoi to do the same thing. And I did that for about a year, and I found that really interesting. Um, and um, that kind of leads into the next thing, where um, they wanted to establish university programs in Vietnam. Before that, there were none. There was Trin Foundation had for, I think, four years or so, five years maybe, put on essentially what are nine-month programs. Early on, they did things which were like a full year, I believe, maybe a bit longer. Mm -hmm. But later on, they just went down to nine-month programs. But the amount of information you have, obviously, about speech therapy from nine months is just not enough. Barely scratching right? the surface, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Especially when you're talking about going everything from feeding, you know, on through. Yeah, it's so much. You can't. Yeah, I mean, I'm not competent in everything. I'm competent in about maybe, you know, 25% of speech pathology as far as I'm concerned, just because I haven't practiced so many things, right? Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, so you helped. Okay, I just want to back up for one second. Sure thing, sure thing. So when you traveled to Vietnam uh, the first time with your with your mom and your younger brother, you, uh, how did you, how did you determine what the need was, if any, like while you're, you're traveling as a tourist, did you at the same time sort of just do some web searches? Did you kind of look through the yellow pages? Uh, how did you determine what the state of uh, play was in Vietnam? You know, that's a very good question. And it speaks to my incredibly poor planning abilities. Actually. <laughs> um, I happened to show up in Vietnam in the middle of Tet Holiday, which uh, Tet Holiday is essentially, it's the Lunar New Year. So like the Chinese New Year, they call it the Chinese New Year. Um, and in Vietnam, they call it Tet. Um, okay. And it's um, like everybody celebrates Tet Holiday. Um, and everybody goes home. So we showed up in Hanoi. 
and virtually nobody was there except for people who were stuck there. <laughs> and that meant it was mostly older people who were homeless or people who had children with disabilities because they couldn't leave and they were very poor or, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. essentially I showed up to a city where on any other, you know, several weeks of the year that I would have shown up, it would have just been super touristy. But when I showed up, everybody that I saw, everything that I saw was just kind of the people who are left over mm. when the tourists and the business people and all of those people are gone. Mm -hmm. um, and in Vietnam, there's, there's, it's not a very rich country. It's very apparent when you see um, people who have some pretty significant disabilities. And for example, they may be spending their day walking around trying to sell lottery tickets. That's a very common thing here. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll find a lot of people who have disabilities just kind of walk up to you at a cafe and try to sell you a lottery ticket. And it costs uh, 10,000 uh, Vietnamese dong, which is uh, about 40 cents, I think, okay. for a ticket, about 10,000. Yeah, it's about 24,000 to a dollar, um, which means that you're a millionaire if you have uh, $45 in this country, which <laughs> is, you know, interesting, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So it's all out there for the world to see because there's nowhere to go. Yeah. And at that point, all of the window dressing around it was kind of gone in terms of the tourists and all of the rest of that. So it was just very apparent to me. Um, and when I saw a little bit, I started, you know, looking around, not, not physically, but kind of going on the internet and, doing searches and trying to figure out, okay, what is available to these people? And one of the reasons for that, I, I mentioned my brother was adopted from Colombia. One of my very early memories is that when we went to go get my brother and we got him when he was two, which made me four, there was a boy and at the orphanage in Colombia, the name of the orphanage was Fana. I don't know what it translates to, mm -hmm. but it was Fana. And there was a boy, once you turn 13 years old, you just have to leave the orphanage. Nobody had adopted this boy. And so he was just out of the orphanage. Uh, I don't know how long, but he was 13 years old. And he would follow you if you went there and asked to be adopted. Right. Oh, goodness. And so, yeah, yeah, it was it, Columbia was a very eye opening experience for a four year old. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so I. Ever since then, I tend to just see those things when I when they're around, mm -hmm. right? It's it's hard for me not to see those things. I think just because it kind of made a big impression on me. Yeah. And so when I started doing web searches and things like that, and and looked for what's available, it was that's how I found Trim Foundation. But yeah, it 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 became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that what was available wasn't adequate. So you, you know? so had you not uh, arrived in Vietnam when you did, you might not have have, have uh, wound up there. Yeah, I might have actually ended up in India because that was another place that I thought about it because India has some of the same problems of seeing people who have real needs. But yeah. uh, interesting, India. Interestingly, India has um, a more developed speech therapy system. It's I don't know how long it's been developed. I've talked to some Indian speech therapists, um, and I know that there's licensing and everything. So how did you come to then developing this university program? 
Get well, back to that. I wouldn't say I. Yeah, I. I didn't develop it. I worked on the team that developed it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um. So there were a couple of nonprofit organizations that worked together. There was MCMV, which I never remember what it stands for, along with Trin Foundation, worked together to do this. And the way that it worked was there was somebody who was pretty high up in Trim Foundation, who is also, I believe, a professor in. I'm not sure which university in, in Australia, but pretty high up in, in like, they know what they're doing. She, she's very high up in, in where she is. Mm -hmm. Um, and she kind of put together, uh, the process. Um, and what we learned we needed to do was what's called a needs assessment. And in Vietnam, you have to have the government's permission to do anything that involves an educational institution. Essentially, if you want to have a program, it's not like you have to have an accreditation by a uh, accreditation body in the United States. The government has to give their stamp of approval for you to do anything. Mm. Um, and so up at the top, there was and I don't remember her name and, and I should. Um, she kind of put the whole thing together. And then there was a lead researcher. And primarily because when they came, they asked me at one point. Um, and I said, I've never done this, um, and I'm not a PhD candidate. I'm a master's degree clinician, okay? I do clinical work. I'm happy to try, but I think you would be a lot wiser having this written up by somebody who knows more than I do. Mm. Um, and I think that they were very wise to take my advice on that to not have <laughs> me do that part. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so she kind of uh, led the in-country project, but her issue was that she's a PhD student. I think she's graduated by now, but she's a PhD student. So she couldn't do a lot of the interviewing. And so my role was to go around the country. I started off up in Hanoi mm -hmm. and I interviewed stakeholders, meaning so heads of hospitals, um, heads of departments of health up there, uh, government officials, patients um, in all varieties, family members of all varieties. I went to the Ministry of Health where I interviewed people there. I went to the Ministry of Education. I interviewed people there. I worked my way from Hanoi down. Hanoi is northern Vietnam. I'm sorry. I should talk about the geography a bit. Hanoi is northern Vietnam, and it's very close to the border. There's a ways above it, but for the most part, it's the primary city of North Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I started there. I worked my way down, stopping in a variety of places along the way. Uh, did Da Nang, did Hue, um, and then kept working down towards southern Vietnam. Um, Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon. Hey, yeah. Were people pretty um, receptive to you? Uh, oh, yeah. Everybody was super receptive to me uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there were red envelopes. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with red envelopes, um, but red envelopes generally have money in them. Um, okay. <laughs> and Yeah. And so people were uh, compensated for their time to come and, and chat with us. Um, but also, people consistently were under the mistaken impression that somehow I could get them more money from the government. And I did my utmost to help them understand that this was not what I was there to do. Uh, yeah. But it, it was consistently, you know, you know, talk about the fact that we need a new wing of the hospital. And I was like, I don't do that. I'm not a yeah. hospital wing guy. You know, I, I just want you to have a speech therapist. And I, I will do my best to make that happen. But 
Yeah. Unless that speech therapist has an uncle who does bricklaying, I can't do anything about the hospital, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, they were super receptive. Did you um, run into any roadblocks uh, on, in any step of the way? I mean, it was all just, you know, or did the government say, okay, do this step, then this step, and, and they were pretty much supportive of each step? You know, yeah. honestly, a lot of that was above my pay grade. Um, yeah. They gave me you know, a date to be at a certain place, a driver and a car to get me there and the materials that I needed in order to do the work that I needed to do. That's, you know, so that's kind of how that works. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah it, it was much easier from my point of view. I'm sure that at some point there was a lot of work to be done that I was just not privy to. So how long did this initial process take this, uh, you know, meeting people um, all across the country and getting their opinions and okays? Yeah, I think it was about, my part of it was somewhere around three months, two months, three months, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, about that. Okay. Uh, and that's because I had to spend a certain amount of time in each different locality because I had to go to, like most major hospitals in every different area that I went to. And, and when you go to the smaller provinces, there's like maybe one hospital and major is an interesting word to use for it. But mm-hmm. when you get to like uh, Hanoi or um, Da Nang, you're talking about quite a few hospitals and you're talking about quite a few stakeholders and everybody has to be involved because everybody wants to have been involved. So yeah. it took more time than it might necessarily have needed to take. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you know, that the goal got met, which is good. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So what happens after that whole step? Okay, so after that step... Um, essentially then it becomes the work of the interpreter that I worked with because everything had to be done through an interpreter. Um, I speak Vietnamese like in my home, we speak Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's with me and my, my wife and I, um, I certainly don't speak Vietnamese to the level where I could teach or do therapy or participate in a needs assessment. So everything went through an interpreter. So at the end of doing all of the interviews and uh, keep in mind that the other person, the PhD candidate, who's probably a PhD at this point, did her, her interviews uh, down in Ho Chi Minh city. Mm -hmm. Um, The interpreters and each of us chatted and discussed what we saw and everything got translated and had to be double translated because you know the you can't rely on one translation you have to have one translation and then you have to have a second translation with a comparison in order to ensure that the translations you know there's just a bunch of things that have to go on yeah. in order to yeah. make it you know pass muster and everything yeah then at that point then it's all submitted to the ministry of health which you know, I, I'm a big believer in educational speech language pathology. I think that there's a real division between the things that, because I work with people who have strokes. I also work with people who, um, have educational needs. And I think that they're just significantly enough different that having it all under one ministry or another doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm Mm-hmm. But due to the politics involved, it had to be under the Ministry of Health because it was considered a health care, um, you know, service. Ah, okay. Um, and also that also gets it under the insurance things and all of those things. So I'm not against that, but I don't think that it really captures 
everything. I, I would wish that the Ministry of Education had a little bit more to do with it. But yeah, so it all got presented to the Ministry of Health and happily, thankfully, they decided to they decided in favor of us um, continuing with the project and creating the courses. And so we had um, three courses created, two master's degrees, one in Ho Chi Minh City and one in Hanoi, and one bachelor's degree, which was created in Nanang. I stepped back a bit there because I don't create curriculum. That's not something I've ever done. So I'm very aware of my deficits in life, and that's not something I'm great at. Mm -hmm. um, so I stayed on to advise and to help and to kind of connect people. And um, I, I taught in the first program in Nanang. Uh, I taught childhood language, um, but we had a wonderful woman from a wonderful speech therapist from Australia come named Sarah. Oh, I don't remember her last name, but she came to Danang mm -hmm. to create the program there and an amazing amount of work, an incredible amount of work. And she managed to get it done. And I, I am completely amazed that that happened in the amount of time that she had. And the other two programs were also created. I have less contact with those. I know less about them, mm -hmm. but I know that essentially the curriculum was virtually identical across all three programs, but legally uh, Dunantin could not have a um, master's program. So even though it has essentially the same curriculum and all of that, it's a bachelor's degree. Is a bachelor's the the minimum required to practice speech pathology now, or is there? I think that there isn't a, like, I think that at this point, people can practice without having a degree whatsoever. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure. One of the things to keep in mind about Vietnam is that although there's a lot of laws in Vietnam, there is not necessarily the money um, to as stringently enforce them as one might hope in some cases. Okay. And so, and, and, and part of that also is that if you don't have any speech therapists and all you have are the 65 people who have been through nine month programs, do you just say, you know what? No, you can't do it. Um, or do you say, you know, we have, you know, a huge population of kids with autism. We have a need. We yeah. Yeah, I respect where they are with that 100%. Yeah, um, makes sense. I would hope that at some point it's going to grow into a minimum requirement. I would expect that the minimum requirement is probably going to be a bachelor's degree at the highest. Mm -hmm. Because keep in mind that a medical doctor degree here is approximately a bachelor's degree in the United States. It, it totally makes sense. I mean, we're talking about a very nascent uh, field, I guess, uh, as it is right now. Now, once these were established, uh, what was the interest like in terms of students? Were the initial class sizes pretty small or did you get a flood of interest immediately? You know, that's actually very interesting because uh, we had to recruit. Um, and in fact, we are we are just finishing up our first like run through. We don't have any graduates yet. Like they w our first graduates are just coming out or will be coming out after I think uh, the next uh, next year, or next semester, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um next couple of semesters. Um, and I remember in the class that I taught, essentially they had to be kind of roped out of other programs and convinced to come to our program because nobody has any idea. Like when I describe myself, 
when people describe me, they describe me as a doctor and I always try to tell them I'm not a doctor, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm not a doctor. Um, but, but the word that they use, bakshi, trilio, and bakshi is doctor and trilio is rehabilitation. Now, if I say that that's what I am, or if I use the word trilio, people assume I'm a physical therapist because that's what they have here. Yeah. There is no word for speech therapist yet. Wow. Right? Yeah. That's, so, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 And um, so, so you're put in a position where you're trying to get people to come to a program that they don't know what you do. They don't know why you do it. They've never heard of it. Nobody's heard of it. Why are they going to come here? Why wouldn't they be an engineer? Yeah. Right? A complete new orientation. So, yeah. It's a lot yeah, of, lot of PR. <laughs> yeah. One of my best students was an Uber driver. Um, so... That was good. Or Grab. It's not Uber here. It's Grab. So, grab, but he okay. was a, he yeah he's a Grab driver. Um, so, but he was a good guy. He was he was bright, you know. And I think yeah. he I think he really would have wanted to be a PT instead. But you know he's mm-hmm. going to be in a speech path. <laughs> so, are you going to be involved in the in teaching uh, curriculum in the long term? Do you think? Are you are you sort of? Are, do you have one foot in private practice uh, in Vietnam right now, or? Oh, I, I don't do anything in Vietnam from, I don't, I've never taken a dime for anything I've done in Vietnam. Okay. Um, all of my private practice is telepractice. It's all a hundred percent online. Ah. Um, yeah. Okay. So it's a good segue um, to, uh, that's the whole telepractice thing. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I'll finish up the other question that you had real quick. Yeah. Yeah. I might, yeah, I might go ahead and continue to, um, teach. However, right now I'm working with a, um, another organization in Vietnam because I feel like the most appropriate thing to do is to move further and further away from foreigners being um, experts and move more and more towards Vietnamese being experts. And so what I want to do is participate in um, awareness campaigns at this point where we help Vietnamese people become aware of speech therapy and services, especially for kids with autism, but also a variety of other things. But I, I think that what we need is a growing body of professional teachers of speech pathology who are Vietnamese and not American, because I think that that's going to serve people better culturally in terms of understanding and teaching the things that become really important. There's so many things that there's so much cultural baggage that somebody brings, you know, mm-hmm. the things that my, my expectations are very different I'm than, sure. yeah. And, and I'm not sure that those expectations need to be dragged into the classroom. You yeah. know, no, that's a very good point. I think that's a very admirable thing that you're doing. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. I, as far as I'm concerned, getting rid of me is, you know, I kind of think of myself in the same way I do as a, as a clinician. The goal is to get rid of me. Um, yeah. so the, the teletherapy, uh, how, when did you establish that part, uh, portion? At the time when, before I moved to Vietnam, I knew that I still had to have an income because as much as I'm on a diet, I still eat. Um, so <laughs> I, I knew I needed an income. Um, and so I started transitioning clients and clients that were comfortable with the transition, I moved them over and clients that were uncomfortable, I connected them with therapists who could provide them services in person. And I started to develop, um, relationships that allowed me to try to get new clients online. Um, and so 
essentially what I did was I slowly transitioned. And by the time I walked into Vietnam, I had enough money so I could pay rent and food every month. I didn't have a lot of money, yeah. but I wasn't really looking for a lot of money. And it's, and it's not a very expensive place to live in general, mm-hmm. but I had, I had enough savings so I could buy a motorbike. Uh-huh. Right. That was uh, just shy of a thousand dollars to buy a motorbike. Um, I could rent a, a, a house and I could feel comfortable then on a monthly basis. I had enough to eat. Um, and from there, I just started building. And I think, honestly, I wish I could say, you know, I have the secrets to this. But honestly, it was really mostly luck. People came to me, you know, it's just you put up your shingle and people found you and. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, part of it is just that I had always had a website. I always had my website um, and people would bounce in and they would find me. And I have some long term clients. Um, for example, one of the things that I've always spent a lot of time with is um, kids who are very involved from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Kids who um, had strokes early on, I, I had a little, I have a little guy on my caseload. He's going to be mine for life. I stopped charging quite a while ago just because at this point I'm just Uncle Seth, um, <laughs> you know, um, and he had a stroke when prior to being six months old, he right. um, had pneumonia and got a stroke, had a stroke. And so I have a variety of clients who are reasonably long term and for the most part, the things that I specialize in are things that um, a lot of people – like there's not a lot of people who really focus on executive function skills in middle school and uh, before and early high school. Um, and I'm a very – I'm very focused on um, – I'm kind of focused on a passion-based learning system. I want to find out what you love and I want us to do our therapy through that. Mm-hmm. Um and so things like I have kids who really want to learn how to program games. I have kids who want to learn how to uh, create movies or videos or um, use, you know, drawing programs. Um, and using those kinds of things, their parents end up wanting to stick with me. I think partially because they know that the therapy is effective. My my kids generally do better in school than they were doing before. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, sometimes it's a hard slog. Um, but um, also, I think that they just see that, that their kids are, are happily engaged in something useful aside from looking at a phone or, or a you know, a computer screen or, uh, you know what I mean? Like a video game. Yeah. Well, I, so. I think it's cool because you're, I, I, I try to do that too, as much as possible. You're just taking their interest and you try to embed the therapy within that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's very cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, as a therapist, you don't want to be bored just doing drill and kill stuff. Totally. Yeah. You, you want to be doing what they're interested in because you know, you, you want to see the passion. You want to see the, yeah. the spark, the interest. Um, yeah, and then you kind of uh, build off of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, wrap up about in talking about accent connection. Ah, absolutely. So one of the things that, as I said, you know, I, I got lucky in that I have enough clients in general to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's always been a pain point for me for doing telepractice has been how do I get clients, right? Um, 
And over the years, I've tried all sorts of things, you know, ads, this, that, the other thing. Um, and it's just always been one of those really hard things for me. And it may be just that I'm a speech path and I'm not an advertising executive. <laughs> But it occurred to me, you know, especially seeing how many people are uncomfortable with the rates that sometimes get thrown around in the telepractice world, that I'm probably not the only person. Oh, yeah. And so I thought, you know what, why don't we solve this? Let, let's get this figured out so that everybody can kind of have their boat rising on a tide together. And so I put together a website called accentconnection.com. And what it is, is, um, and this is kind of a weird way to describe it, but I kind of think of it like a dating site, mm -hmm. only instead of finding a date, what you find is a client. So a speech therapist who is interested in doing accent modification, accent reduction, or accent acquisition. And I believe in all three of those terms. Personally, for me, for my Vietnamese, I need accent reduction. I don't need modification. I don't have a, a different accent. I just don't have, you know, I'm, I just don't sound good in Vietnamese. The subtleties, right? yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, and, and I get the arguments for all three of them, and I'm apolitical on those arguments, but I believe that everybody has a right to search for the services that they want to get. Sure. And so yeah, I yeah. don't, I don't, yeah, I don't lock anybody down to anything in that way. Yeah. Um, so I put it together. I put the website together. I, um, you know, I hired in a team to do that. I've done all of my own websites, but I, I really want this to, um, be really good, really professional, really done right so that people can use it. Um, and I put it together from a basis of what would I want as a professional to be able to get out of this service? And, what I wanted was a reasonably low cost. I wanted to know that I was going to get enough time to try it out um, so that I wasn't putting any money in until I knew I was getting money out of it. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be a low enough cost so that I knew that I was making money from it. And I wanted it to be easy enough so that I didn't have to do a whole lot of things. I wanted to just show up, put up my profile, and kind of sit back. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I made it for, for people who are looking for that. And my job and our whole advertising thing is to bring clients to people who want clients. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, I have a, a lot of hopes for it. Yeah. It, it's a, how long has it been up by the way? It's brand new. Um, I think I've been open for a month to a month and a half. Total. Okay. I think yeah. I think it's a great idea on so many levels. I mean, a I haven't seen a, an idea like that or a website like that uh, to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. B I love it. I mean, it's it's going to be a global thing. You know, I'm it, hoping. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it it could potentially just be something that people all over the world. It's you know, and um, accent modification reduction, whatever you want to call it. it. It's growing, and I I think there's um, you know, there's definitely this need. Of how do we fulfill the needs of clients overseas and. I know I've heard of SLPs before who have uh, worked with uh, over Skype and over other platforms, but I, I think that it'd be so nice to have like a central place, a, a place where uh, clients and providers can meet each other. I'll, I'll definitely link that in the show notes. I hope that people find it. And uh, are you getting are you getting any um, users yet? Have any any bites so far? Yeah, we do actually. Uh, we have uh, we have 
what I've been told is a pretty significant um, start to our mailing list. We have close to 100 people who have already signed up to the mailing list. We have um, not a huge number of users, but we do have more than I expected over the first month. Um, our advertising hasn't even really ramped up. We're getting a really good um, response. And one of the really nice things that I'm seeing is that people are putting down the kinds of amounts that they're expecting as their rates that are matching up with the, I did a bunch of research beforehand and they're matching up with what people, what students were thinking would be an appropriate amount to spend. So I feel like, like you said, that connection economy, people want to create connections and relationships. And that's something that, that I think is always going to be important. So yeah. yeah and, and the timing is, is perfect. I mean, during the pandemic, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's teletherapy is accelerating it's a silver lining or anything, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone's moving towards teletherapy and, and the whole notion, at least here in the US, I don't know about the rest of the world is that um, the pandemic has just accelerated a number of trends, one of those trends being teletherapy. So we'll see uh, what happens there. But no, I think um, I, I just think it's a it's a great idea. And I, I wish you a lot of success with it. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I hope okay. hopefully it becomes huge and everybody loves it and, and uh, all of those wonderful things. And, and hopefully I get a bunch of clients out of that because honestly, that was my primary motivation <laughs> was that I wanted to sign up to my own website. <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. So I was just checking Accent Connections website today and I was looking up to see uh, how many providers were on there. And there's quite a few. Um, I have a feeling that uh, Seth is onto something here. I'm sure the website is going to grow. Um, I'm hoping that there are a good number of consumers who find it. At some point in the near future, I just might sign up on that website myself. Who knows? All right. So, Seth, thank you so much for being on the show. As always, any comments, questions, concerns, rants, etc., send them my way. Jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you next time. Stay safe.